Oh, hey. You're a bit early, but that's totally cool. That's totally cool. Welcome to the basement. I kind of didn't expect anyone to show up for the first day, but that's amazing. I'm glad you're here. Uh, today's theme is loss. Looking at poetry from the magazine The Tower. It might get a little heavy, so I guess trigger warning? Is that a thing I should say? I mean, it's like poetry, so it's all kind of just a big giant trigger warning. Anyways, just, just make yourself comfortable, help yourself to some coffee, we're about to get started. Okay, so cheesy intros aside, this is the very first episode of the Student Union Poetry Hour. I even came up with a clever tagline for the show, or at least I think is clever. Freshman poetry, fresh takes. Which, I mean, we don't just feature freshman poetry, this is a podcast for all undergraduate poetry, but you know, that didn't rhyme, so not the tagline. But I'm really excited about this project because uh, this is brand new ground as far as I know. There, I mean, there's so many literature podcasts out there, but not that many poetry podcasts. And as far as I know, there are no poetry podcasts that exclusively feature undergraduate poetry from all across the United States or even internationally, as long as it's in English because I don't read other languages. But really the impetus behind this is like I want to feature the the new the newest authors the people who are going to go down in history as the classics which is weird to think about like people alive today are going to be writing poetry they're going to be writing short stories that eventually are looked on in a hundred years as absolute classics as generation divining as zeitgeist creating and that's what I want to be I will like want to be finding finding that stuff before it becomes before it becomes a classic. I want to be pushing that to the forefront. So every week I'm going to be finding a new college magazine looking for undergraduate authors. And I mean, okay, like I want to find the best of the best, but I'm not only here to feature the best of the best. I'm here to feature the stuff that I think is interesting. And sometimes that's going to be the diamonds in the rough, the poets that I think have brilliant ideas, but maybe like aren't fully like able to articulate them in the way that their ideas are worth being articulated in. And look, I'm I'm not the world's best author, so I want to be right there in the trenches with my brethren who have these amazing ideas that have to be shared with the world. And I want to be featuring this stuff, even if it's not perfect, even if it's not uh, the best it could possibly be, even if it's not in this final incarnation. Um. But, you know, with all this said, you know, this is going to be a lot of fun. Poetry is fun, and I'm ready to, like, just go forward. So I have already talked way too much without reading any poetry. So with all this being said, I have two poems this week from a magazine called The Tower. The Tower is a magazine published by undergraduate editors from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Holy crap, I butchered that. The University of Minnesota Twin Cities. It's got a lot of great stuff in it, so I think you're really going to love the two poems I've selected, and you, you know, I'm going to shut the fuck up. So ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, I present the very first Student Union Poetry Hour. So we're starting today off with a poem called Bike Life by author Joey Gotchnik. This is featured in volume 13 of The Tower on page 18. This is a poem that is, of course, about loss on today's theme. Obviously, I'm not going to pick a poem that's not about loss. Uh, but it's not about what you would typically think about when I say loss. It's not the loss of a loved one. It's not the loss of friends over time. 
It's the loss of an object that has a lot of meaning in it, but it's not an heirloom. It's not a family item that's passed through the generations. It's not anything that has sentimental value. It's actually something that has a lot of practical value. But I'm not sure if I really want to say much more. Why don't we just let the poem speak for itself? This is Bike Life by Joey Gotchnik. Circle of red, a quick right, and I'm streaming through this Sunday afternoon. Pedals flow, these tires whisk over concrete, curbs, and grass. New brakes slow me toward two large maples with falling leaves. Back and bike against the trunk, I sit and write about fall until the sun drifts to sleep. Cool breeze of the night, comb my hair on my last bike home. And now you've gone, ten years you've been with me. Just a lock in two pieces saying, at least I left this. The lock next to a cold metal bar shaped like a bent bike wheel, like a prison. All those times I left you in the rain to rust and the cold to freeze, your gears had ground enough. But it's just a bike, not a life. I'm already riding a new one. Combing my hair, I'm on the bike home in the cool breeze of the night. Until the sun drifts to sleep, I sit and write about winter with my back against the couch. Two large maples covered in snow, winter break, hot chocolate, gloves and hats. The new mountain tires sit, pedals hang on this Sunday afternoon. I'm streaming through this quick right, and then I'll circle it in red. Alright, so that's that's the poem. That's the whole thing. It's about, well, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six stanzas. Count them. Um, varied, varied line length, actually. It's not varied lines. Well, one, varied line length, but also a varied amount of lines per stanza is not a... There's not a standard here. It's kind of loosey-goosey, which is all right. That's very okay. Um, so the, basically, for for me, I think the the impetus behind this poem is obviously the author's, or I shouldn't say the author. The speaker's bike has been stolen, and he's reminiscing on this. But and I I really like the. Uh, a, a lot of the details he gives, just kind of these concrete spots where it uh, makes me feel very into the poem. So, you know, like, first stanza, he says, Sunday afternoon, petals flow, these tires whisk over concrete curbs and grass, new brakes slow me toward two large maples with falling leaves. Uh, I really like the two specific lines, petals flow, these tires whisk, giving the... I really like how he's using flow and whisk, which aren't normally wor- verbs you would use to describe a bike that's being ridden, but I really like how it just kind of gives that sense of motion just through the the words themselves, like flow and whisk. I don't know. They, they, they have a... They have a... Mm, I don't know. They got a motion to them, and I like it. Um, but I also think that the concrete... Uh, detail in this poem, or rather a kind of lack of it, I feel, is holding this, or I shouldn't say there's a lack of it, there's a lot of concrete detail in this poem, it's just not the concrete detail that I really want, you know, like, um, in the, what is it, fourth stanza, I believe, fourth stanza, we're gonna say, uh, it says, combing my hair on the bike home in the cool breeze of the night until the sun drifts to sleep. I sit and write about winter. Wait, I'm reading the wrong stanza. I'm I'm a dumbass. Uh, <laughs> it's the stanza right after that. Two large maples covered in snow, winter break, hot chocolate gloves and hats. Right? So that's, those are three things, three little details that we all know about, right? Um, 
like they're just winter nouns. Hot chocolate, gloves, hats. Um, that 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 kind of detail, like it doesn't provide the sense of anything. They're just nouns that exist, and I instantly picture them. I picture gloves. I picture hats. I picture hot chocolate. And the intent is to give me a sense of winter, which I do get a sense of winter, but it's not really enhanced by this line. Hot chocolate, gloves and hats, there's just boom, now it's in space. Yeah. So, there, it's detail, um, but I'm not getting any actual work done with that detail. Like, that detail's not pulling any weight here. Two large maples covered in snow, winter break, hot chocolate, gloves, and hats. Two large maples covered in snow, winter break, hot chocolate, gloves, and hats. Like, it's just like, if you're, just like, this feels like he's just freestyling here, you know? Which, like, is not necessarily the point of poetry. You're not really supposed to just freestyle nouns that have to do with winter in order to give people a sense of winter. Like, you gotta, you gotta do a little bit more work, Joey. Um... Make me, make me feel the winter. I want to see snow coming through my windows here in the middle of July. Like, I don't know. Like, you gotta, there's gotta be more to this. There's just, just gotta be something else. And I feel like a dick for saying that. Honestly, I feel like a dick for saying that because I'm, I really do kind of like where this, where the idea of this poem is, just focusing on, like, the transient nature of things in our lives, even things that we really like. Like, this dude clearly loves his bike. It gets stolen. He gets a new bike. Like, that's, uh, I guess there's, like, a feeling of, like, um, of loss. There's, like, a specific feeling of loss, like, kind of associated with losing something you like and then having to replace it because you need that thing to exist. Um, I'm tr- You know, like we, we, I feel like this is a feeling that a lot of people have probably had. Um, for example, I got my first computer in 2014 with my own money, I should say. This was my the first computer that I bought for myself, mostly. And... Um, I really liked that computer, but it was kind of a piece of shit, and so later on, in like 2016, 2017, somewhere around there, I bought a new computer that was a lot better, and there was kind of a sense of, I wasn't losing the old computer in the same way, it wasn't stolen, it wasn't destroyed, but there was a sense of moving on there, like it was my first computer, and now I'm just throwing it aside, I'm tossing it away like it's nothing to me. Uh, to make way for something bigger and better. And so there, I, I feel like that's a feeling that's worth exploring, right? And worth exploring, worth exploring through poetry, too. And that can be really powerful, really beautiful. But I'm not getting that... I, I don't feel like that feeling is what's being described here. There's a lot of context around that feeling that's being described, but I'm not getting that actual feeling. And that's what's uh, bothering me about this poem. Even though I think there's so much potential depth here, it's just not diving into it. It's like going to the Marianas Trench 
and then just kind of like, you know, boating on the surface. You're not even dipping your toes in the water. You're just on a motor. You're like just on a fucking yacht on top of the Marianas Trench, <laughs> standing at the top, you know, just hanging out, sipping margaritas. And you're just like, wow, I could dive really deep into the ocean right now, but I'm not going to. I'm going to stand on top of my yacht and live my life up here. So that's where I'm at with this poem. And. I want, I want to try and find some more examples, because, like, there, it's just, I, I don't want to, like, get stuck on this. It's the easiest thing to criticize, so I, I, I don't want to, like, stay here. I want to also, like, you know, we're just going to move on. I'm not going to find more examples of this. We're just going to move on. I feel like I've made my point, and we're going to talk about something else. So, one thing I did like, although there's a caveat to me liking it, was I liked the circularity of the poem. So the poem begins with circle of red, a quick right, and I'm streaming through this afternoon. And it ends with, I'm streaming through this quick right, and then I'll circle it in red. And then, there, this, like, the poem kind of mirrors itself, so the structure. So there's other places where this happens. So this, um, let me see, let me see, let me see. Uh, I'm trying to find it. Um, oh, so, like, I'm streaming through this Sunday afternoon, pedals slow, tires whisk over concrete curbs and grass, new brakes slow me toward two large maple leaves with falling leaves, um, indicating fall, and then it's two large maples covered in snow, indicating winter, the new mountain tire sit, pedals hang on this Sunday afternoon, so there's a lot of, and it's, it's mirrored, so it's like, that first stanza is then mirrored in the last two stanzas. And that's just nice. That's a nice circularity. Because, again, the, the point of this poem is kind of that sense of moving on, that sense of um, just life continues, even though, like, the that first bike may have been something momentous, something important to the reader, or, the, sorry, not the reader, the, uh, the, the speaker of the poem. The, the life moves on. Uh, past that and th that circularity that mirror image of the first stanza i think really helps solidify that point through the structure of the poem and that's really nice now the caveat as i was saying earlier is i don't know what i'll circle it in red means at the end that's the very last line of the poem and this might be just me being a complete moron i do not know i've read this a million times I still don't understand it. I feel like I'm missing an obvious something. Something obvious. I don't know. And it's frustrating me because I don't want to miss this something obvious. So he says, I'm stream this is the very last stanza. I'm streaming through this quick right and then I'll circle it in red. Is he so is he talking about the quick right? Is he so he's writing in a journal or a notebook or something. That's the um, the vibe I get, because in, earlier he was writing in the park. It could be on a laptop or a tablet, but I don't automatically assume that, so I'm, I'm just assuming he's writing in a notebook or a notepad or a journal, something of that description. And in this last stanza, he says, I'm streaming through this quick write, and then I'll circle it in red. Is he talking about the thing he just wrote? Is he talking about the date? Is he talking about something else? The, the, the... Is he talking about the bike? Like, what the hell is he talking about here? 
I, I think grammatically it would make most sense for him to circle the be circling his the thing he just wrote in red but I don't know why he would be doing that I'm not sure what the motivation for that would be and I feel like I'm missing something so stupidly obvious that like I'm just overthinking this I, I really think I'm overthinking it but I can't get to that place where I'm not overthinking it so we're just going to be totally unable to understand this I think I don't know this is incomprehensible because I'm an idiot um, but that's okay. Uh, but it is a reflection of the first um, stanza where he says, Circle of red, a quick right. Now, here is something that I just want to briefly say. This is my own pet peeve of poetry. And it's it's not even it's not anything that's wrong. It's not anything that's bad. It's just a pet peeve of mine. So... You know, like, take this with a mega grain of salt, but he says, circle of red, a quick right. Circle of red annoys me. And the reason why it annoys, it annoys me is because I believe he is describing a stoplight, a red traffic light, as you might say. But instead of saying a red stoplight, a quick right, and I'm streaming through this afternoon, which would rhyme and just have a nice rhythm to it. He says, circle of red, a quick right. Like, what the fuck? Like, you're making it needlessly confusing. I had to read that first line like two or three times before I understood that he was referring to a traffic light. A circle of red, a quick right. Because like, just say what the fucking noun is. Uh, again, this is my own pet peeve, so I don't want to, like, like so many poets do this that, like, I can't say that it's wrong, because even poets that I really like do this. They come up with these fancy descriptions for basic nouns. Instead of saying a traffic light, they say a circle of red. Instead of saying fucking um, the restaurant, they say the palace of food or some shit, you know? Like, it's just like, just say the fucking noun, like... Don't don't overcomplicate what it is. I I want to have a more clear description of what the thing is, and by using the actual word for that thing, it makes it more clear. Um. So yeah, any any anything like that. I'll, I'll give another example. Instead of saying the white flying tube, just say airplane. You know, like, you don't have to be too fancy. Um, just say what the noun is. Um, anyways, that's just a little pet peeve of mine where that it's, it's a real, it's like a big poetry trope, and I don't know, I, I'm, <laughs> it just frustrates me. So that's the caveat to why the circularity hurts me, because this is important for the circularity of the poem, because the first line is circle of red, and the last line is I'll circle it in red. If the first line was, there's a red stoplight in front of me, it wouldn't have the same, it, w it wouldn't work the same way, right? It wouldn't be as clever. So I know exactly why he's over-describing the the first line, the first traffic light. I know why he's doing it, why he's, why he's saying it like this, because then it makes sense with the last line, but it bugs me, man. It bugs me. Regardless, 
we're going to move on because I've already spent, I feel like I've spent too much time on that one little rant of mine, so I'll, I'll stop now. So the third stanza of the poem, I'll read it right now so you have it fresh in your mind again. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll just read it. And now you are gone. Ten years you've been with me, just a lock in two pieces saying, at least I left this. The lock next to a cold metal bar shaped like a bent bike wheel, like a prison. All those times I left you in the rain to rust in the cold to freeze and your gears had had, had ground enough. Okay, so this is the like the meat of the poem. This is the meat of the poem right here. This is where he really gets in. This in the next stanza, which I'll get to that in a second. But this is where he starts, you know, kind of exploring that idea of, you know, this is a, something that I hold dear, and now it's gone. It's been taken from me. And I'm going to have to move on, which he does in the next stand, uh, and it's very quick, it's very brief, and it's very um, punchy, and I like that. But in this stanza, he, he draws it out. He draws out that feeling of loss, and now you're gone. Ten years you've been with me, just a lock in two pieces. Like, the thick description of, of all of this, saying... At least I left this, the lock next to a cold metal bar, shaped like a bent bike wheel, like a prison. All those times I left you in the rain to rust, in the cold to freeze, your gears had ground enough. And then, the next stanza comes, and it's like, but it's just a bike, not a life, I'm already riding a new one. You know? It's just like, boom, we, we moved on. Every, everything's happened already. So, yeah, I don't know, like... I, I really like that two stands of contrast where he spends all this time like, oh my god, this bike, I loved it. And then he's like, but it's not, it's just a bike, I got a new one. Story's over, right? Um, in fact, I even feel like you could have ended on that, like, that, that second stanza, but it's just a bike, not a life, I'm already writing a new one. That could be the end of the poem. And it would all it would be very powerful on its own. I, I I do see why he went for the next three stanzas after that, but you could potentially in a different poem have ended on that stanza, and it would be just very powerful, just like that. Um, so I like that two stanza contrast. The long, short, real nice kind of gives you that punch in the gut that you expect. Um. I feel, I feel that the the long stanza has some weird details that don't make sense to me, and that just might again caveat that could just be because I'm a moron. But you know, well, I'll, I'll read it through, and you can decide. You, the reader, can decide if it makes sense or not, and whether I'm being too judgmental. <clears throat> Excuse me, I was I was about to burp, but then I just like didn't so okay uh anyways and now you're gone 10 years you've been with me just a lock in two pieces saying at least i left this um that it that is that's tight right there that's solid that's tight i like that the lock next to a cold metal bar shaped like a bent bike wheel like a prison so this is where i fall off 
shaped like a bent bike wheel shaped like a prison. Does a bent bike wheel look like a prison? Because I, I kind of see it. Like, the spokes going in can, I guess, be bars. But I'm not sure if I really buy it, though. Like, I under I think I understand why the author went for that metaphor or that simile. Um, but I don't... I don't buy it as a reader. Like, I was confused by that when I first read I'm like, what do you mean? Bent bike wheels don't look like prisons. But I... So, like, this is, like, a thing where it's, like, I personally did not enjoy that simile. But I also understand it. And I can see why the author used it. And I think there may be merit there. I just don't want to, like... I don't know. Like, this is this is the problem with art. You know, I don't want to say you're wrong because that's not necessarily true. I could be wrong and I just don't know it. I mean, I only have my perspective. I want to say that's wrong, though, because, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of a dick and I want to, you know, be right all the time about everything. So I don't know. Like, this is for you guys to decide, I guess. The lock next to a cold metal bar shaped like a bent bike wheel like a prison are bent bike wheels sh- like a prison do they, do they conjure up the image of a prison to you there's the other point here that i also want to bring up this is a second uh factor in this discussion where like does the simile like a prison actually add anything to the stanza because he's talking about that sense of loss you have when you lose something you lose an object that's important for you important to you he says, lock next to a cold metal, metal, I'm having a hard time saying metal today. The lock next to a cold metal bar, shaped like a bent bike wheel, like a prison. All those times I left you in the rain to rust, and the cold to freeze, your gears had ground enough. So, the simile saying, like a prison, I don't know what that's actually adding to the stanza, you know? It's one of those things where... Sure, okay, maybe you do go along with the simile, and you're like, yeah, bent bike wheel really does look like a prison. Why are you comparing it to that in this stanza? Are you trying to... Because to me, the bike represents freedom, the total opposite of a prison, you know? So, like, was the bike holding you in your house? Like, you're riding this bike to the park every day. So why is why is the bent bike wheel immediately making you think, Prison! Like, I, I don't know. Like, that doesn't seem to jive with me. Um, again, I, I feel like, you know what? This is up for the listener, the reader, the consumer to decide if this simile makes sense in this stanza. I just don't feel like it does. I don't think bent bike wheels really look like prisons. I kind of understand it, but I don't really see it. But I don't also feel this simile. I don't, I don't think... Unless I'm misunderstanding how he's trying to use this simile, but, like, the lock in two pieces, the lock next to a cold metal bar. So the the broken lock on the ground is like a prison. So you can think about this two ways, I guess. So, one, a lock is literally a prison because it locks things. But this is a broken lock that has been, like, I, I guess... Eh, I assume, like, cut in two somehow. This this bike lock has been broken into two pieces. It looks like a bent bike wheel, which is supposedly like a prison, but a broken lock isn't imprisoning anything. 
your bike is now free. Your bike is no longer locked away by your own selfish desire to keep riding it, you know? I don't know. Like, this simile isn't jiving with me, but you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not. Maybe there's an aspect to the stanza that I'm not seeing that um, brings it all together that makes it make sense. Either way. Actually, you know what? I'm not going to say either way. It doesn't make sense for me to say that in this situation. You know what? I think this poem overall is pretty good. I do have some caveats. I'll recap real quick. I really like the circularity of the poem. I really love the idea of the poem. It's exploring that sense of loss and nostalgia you have for something. This bike was important to the author. Maybe it was his first bike. Maybe it's not. Maybe it was his first bike in college, which is something, you know, different. You know, maybe, like, this bike in college is letting him get around campus. And, you know, he's going to he's going to the park to write. He's going to parties and on this bike, and it means so much to him. And now he loses it. And then he gets another bike, and he moves on. And I think that's a really cool idea for a poem. I really love that. Um, I just am not entirely on board with... I Well, I don't like his, the, like, kind of ad-libby details where, you, you know, you're just, like, rattling off nouns to give the sense of some kind of change. I'm not a fan of that trope. And then I'm also not sure about that prison metaphor, I keep saying metaphor. It's a simile. It's a simile. He says like a prison, so it's a simile. I'm not sure if I'm on board with that prison simile. In any case, I think our time has just about run out for Joey Gotchnik, so I'm not going to uh, stand here and keep gabbering on. This has been Bike Life, written by Joey Gotchnik. You can find this in volume 13 of The Tower on page 18. I think it's time for another poem. I think it's time for the second poem, the second poem of the Union Poetry Hour, and I think that this poem is going to be about loss, which, you know, is the theme of the episode, so obviously, like, duh. Anyways, I think the poem that we're going to read, well, I mean, I already picked it out, so I don't think, is this, the poem we're going to read is called Papu by Demetrius Sabanti. You can find this, again, obviously, in the Tower, which is the magazine we're looking at, so, duh. You can find this on page 39 of the Tower, if you are following along. And, you know what, I don't know if there's anything I can say about this poem that is really worth saying before it's been read, so I'm not going to give it an introduction. We're going to read it, and the poem will serve as its own introduction. Alright, so this is Papu by Demetria Sabanti. Here we go. I'm going to Greece to find you, Papu. I'm going to find you in the face of every old Kalamata olive-skinned man I see. And when I approach, I'll ask, Do you remember when Nana would brush my curls, already with sweat and youth, and then we'd walk to the tennis courts painted the shade of green most loved by the wealthy? Do you think the pink bows in my too big hair, you know she's Greek with that hair, the bows you liked? Are you haunted by how I cried when you left for the ocean so terrible to me then? She took you from me, and I didn't see you for three years. Does it make you happy to think of when I'd kissed sea spray on the boat, the one we called a little odd, after Nana? And when you were, and you were strong like Hollywood men, but better than them. Did you see me reaching upward to hold your wing? Did you want to say that you loved me too as you sank into black nothing? Would those Greek men walk away if I asked them these things? Would they play pretend for me? 
I need to know because I'd sleep better at night if I could look upon even the lie of you one last time. So, I mean, holy shit, that's a good poem. Uh, you, you know, like, fuck, that is solid. Um, I don't know where I even want to start with this. So we're going to start with something that's maybe not the most um, obvious. Anyway, we're going to start with the... You know what, it's really obvious. I don't know why I said that. I just was blanking out. We're going to start with the rhythm of the poem. The poem has such a nice rhythm to it. I, I mean, shit, like... I'm going to Greece to find you, Papu. I'm going to find you in the face of every old Kalamata olive-skinned man I see. And when approached, I'll ask, do you, like, I don't know. Like, each of these lines just has, like, an energy to it. I'm like, so, I'll, I'll, I'll actually, like, say when the line breaks are. I'm going to Greece to find you, line. Papu, I'm going to find you, line, in the face of every old line. Kalamata, olive-skinned man I see, line. And when approached, I'll ask, do you, line, remember when Nana would brush my curls, line. So, those first, I think, f- six, those first six lines, oh my gosh, just on the page, they look nice. So, one, the first line is, like, long. The second line is, like, medium. The third line is short. The fourth line is short. The fifth line is medium, and the sixth line is long. It's like that nice, like, kind of curve. I I don't know, like, it looks good on the page. There's a lot of internal rhyme in the first two lines. I'm going to Greece to find you, Papu. I'm going to Greece to find you. It's like, oh my goodness. Like, that is such a tight opening right there. In the face of every old Kalamata olive-skinned man I see, like, Kalamata olive skinned like that's a really fun like thing to say like it's just fun to say there's I don't know if there's any there's internal rhyme in the word Kalamata which is actually really cool that's just the word itself I mean that's not like the poet doing anything that's just the word being a fun word to say but Kalamata olive like oh my god like I mean that's a phrase but like it I, it's so good because Kalamata Olives rolls out the tongue and then skinned kind of, it brings you in for a slowdown before Man I See, which rhyme, well, like, those the first four lines have so much internal rhythm going on, like, it's like, wow, like, I'm I'm so impressed with that, like, I, I can't even begin to say, like, how hard that is to actually write and, like, make it sound so good. I'm going to Greece to find you, Papu. I'm going to find you in the face of every old Kalamata olive-skinned man I see. I don't... Uh, there's there's nothing else I can say. That's just so fun to read. So fun to say out loud. I can only imagine that the poet spent, like, hours... I, I don't want to say, like, hours, but they spent a good amount of time just, like, reading this poem out loud to themselves and then rewriting based on that kind of rhythm because, like... If any of those syllables are out of place, if any of them are in different spots, like, it doesn't have that same deceiving jauntiness. Like, there's a kind of, like, like, that. those first four lines almost seem hopeful because, like, they just bounce off the tongue so fast and so nice. And it's like, I'm going to Greece to find you, Papu. I'm going to Greece to find you in the face of every old Kalamata olive-skinned man I see. And when approached, I'll ask, do you remember when Nana would brush my curls already with sweat and youth? And then we walked to tennis courts painted the shade of green most loved by the wealthy. 
that sounds hopeful. That sounds so... I, I don't want to say carefree, because like, they're going to Greece to find their father, but it sounds like this person is out to go seize the day and find their father in Greece by going out and doing things, and it's oh, it's so deceivingly happy, and that rhythm really plays into that feeling, that just, yes, like, wow. And so I think really where we have to go from there is we got to read the part that contrasts with that first half. So this is a two-stanza poem, and the first stanza is really thick, as you might imagine, so... Um, that's like the first half of the first stanza. Here's the second half of the first stanza. Are you haunted by how I cried when you left for the ocean so terrible to me then? She took you from me and I didn't see you for three years. Does it make you happy to think of when I'd kiss sea spray on the boat? Um, there's zero, like, I, I don't want to say zero. There's a little bit. There's very little rhyming. There's very little, like, sup the rhythm in this is not bouncy. It's not happy. It's not jaunty. Which, super huge contrast to the first half of the poem, which is, like, it's jaunty, 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 up and literally until that line, are you haunted by how I cried when you... And then the lines lengthen out. These are the longest line... The these are yes, a couple of these lines are the longest lines in the entire poem, and they they stretch on for quite a bit longer than those first lines, which were all like I, I said like how like the first line is long, the second line medium, the third line is short. Those are all short compared to these lines in the second half. Are you haunted by how I cried when you line left for the ocean so terrible to me then she took you line from me and i didn't see you for three years does it make you line happy to think of when i'd kiss sea spray on the boat line i i i really like that lengthening of the lines into the second half because it just kind of i mean long lines force you to well okay long lines are kind of interesting because they don't actually make you slow down. They kind of make you speed up. But I really think this actually helps give gravity to the second half of the poem. Because it's... Well, one, the rhythm changes. So, like... So, rhythm and line length have kind of an inverse relationship when it comes to how fast you can read. So, if the line has a lot of, like, um, rhyming and or rhythm that is easy to say you kind of speed through the line but if the line is short that kind of like the line breaks force your eyes to move to the next line which introduces a pause into the reading of the poem so when you say i'm going to greece to find you papu i'm going to find you in the face of every old kalamata olive-skinned man i see and when approached i'll ask do you those lines are all relatively short but the lines themselves read quickly, so even though there's a little bit of a pause at the end of each line as my eyes have to find the beginning of the next line, um, the that whole first six lines goes by really fast, just because the lines themselves are really jaunty. The second half of the poem has got these really long lines, which, since your eyes don't have to move as much to the beginning of the next line, it's a lot more information-dense than the first half. 
you you can kind of skim through that really quickly but the rhythm or there's no pause I, there's not as many pauses as your eyes have to find the next line but you can't just like read through it faster than the first half because the rhythm of the second half forces you to slow down there's a lot less internal rhyming there it's a lot less these words are bigger with more syllables um are you haunted by how I cried when you left for the ocean? So terrible to me then. She took you from me, and I didn't see you for three years. Does it make you happy to think of when I'd kiss sea spray on the boat? So, like, the lengthening of the lines, like, the lengthening of the words, even, like, haunted, terrible. Um, I'm trying to think of any other keywords. Hollywood men. These are, like, reaching upward like these are multi-syllabic words that are not as easy to say they force you to slow down and they're like they communicate like more specific ideas than the short words before which um i don't know i'm getting lost in my thoughts here for a second so i don't want to like get lost in my thoughts and then you people get lost because my thoughts don't make sense. So I gotta pull myself back to reality. I'm just so in love with this poem right now. Are you haunted by how I cried when you left for the ocean? So terrible to me then. She took you from me and I didn't see you for three years. Does it make you happy to think of when I kissed sea spray on the boat? The one we called the little odd after Nana. When And you were strong like Hollywood men, but better than them. Do you see me reaching upward to hold your wing? Do you did you want to say that you loved me too as you sank into black nothing? Like yeah, those long like legato lines, they just they kill me, dude. I love them. I love them so much. I, I yeah, like it's just everything in the second half of the poem contrasts to the first one. It's different. If it did it one way in the first half of the stanza, it does it a different way the second half of the stanza. And I, that just really signals to the reader. It's so fucking clear. It's so fucking clear. There's a dramatic switch halfway through that stanza, and that switch doesn't go away. I've talked so much about the rhythm. I've talked so much about the line length. I feel like I've got to move on to something else now, but there, there's genuinely a lot of depth in the way this poem handles, um, handles its, um, like, the metrical structure of this is really good. And there's a lot you could talk about. So genuinely, like, wow. Um, anyways, the last stanza. We're going to have to talk about the last stanza because it is powerful in its own right. And it's you know, it's a very beautiful thing. So we're going to have to read it. And I'll, I'll just read it. Yeah. Would those Greek men walk away if I asked them these things? Would they play pretend for me? I need to know because I'd sleep better at night if I could look upon even the lie of you one last time. So, I just want to talk about those last two lines. If I could look upon even the lie of you one last time. So, actually, let me let me tell you where the line break is. So, if I could look upon even line the lie of you one last time. That is so beautiful. Okay, like... The reason, okay, the reason I think it's really beautiful is because the lie of you one last time, that very, that's the very, very last line. That has, the word lie in that sentence kind of has almost a double meaning. It's the lie of you as in, like, you could say, like, the lie of the land, you know, like, 
the lie in that sense where it's like the general like landscape of something so she's just saying like if i could just look upon the lie of you one last time on the faces of these old greek men walking around in greece um that would be good enough like just get a general impression of like the landscape of your face and these in the faces of these genetically similar people you know but then there's also like you could also think of it you know the lie of you as in like lie as in I'm lying to you about something you know like these Greek men kind of have um um I guess to the to the speaker of the poem, these Greek men are, like, lying to her because they look like her father in a superficial sense, but they obviously are not her father. So, I, I really like that double meaning in that last use of the word lie, and whichever way you read it as, for the first time, like, when you read through this poem the first time, you're immediately going to think of one of those two meanings of the word lie, but whichever one you, you think of, the poem still makes sense. But it kind of has a different texture. So, re- realistically, either of those mean the same thing in the context of the poem. Whether she's looking upon the lie of something as in the general landscape of their face resembles the general landscape of her father's face. Or whether you're thinking about it as... Um, these Greek men uh, have the lie of her father's face as in they superficially look like their father, but obviously they're not her father. Um, Those kind of mean the same thing in this poem. She's just saying, like, if I can see people that look like you, then that's going to be helpful for me as I try to fall asleep at night. But each of those has its own, like, distinct feeling to it. Like, if I can... I I need to come up with a better way of talking about this, but the lie of you one last time in the sense of the general landscape of a face, that makes it feel more sailory and maybe a little bit more positive even, but it's saying, like, if I could look upon the lie of you one last time, has, uh, in the other sense of the word lie, which I hope you're not getting confused because I'm saying this so much, um, but if I could look upon the lie of you one last time, that just sounds like maybe even a bit spiteful, but still like cathartic. So I just really like that last line because I think you can take it in two different ways and both ways are unique in how they hit the reader. Um, and frankly, like, I don't like that's something I wish I would be able to do in my own poetry. You know, like I really wish I I was able to come up with endings that that fun, that 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 deep, that interesting. Um but a lot that's like one of those things that almost has to happen by accident. It's so good. Like there are some things that when you're writing you're like you just like write it and then like you reread it and you're like holy fuck, I'm a genius. Like how am I so good at writing? That's like that line has to be one of those where you're just like, I I this is one hundred percent how she wrote it. She was like, it was like two a.m. at night. She's trying to like, just write this out and like before she submits it to the magazine and she's like the deadline is like coming up. It's real fast, um, and she's like shit. I gotta I gotta I gotta finish editing this poem, but I don't really like the ending of it. The ending kind of sucks. I need to write something new. All right, um, the lie of you one last time, and then 
she like goes gets a drink or something comes back she's like holy fuck i'm a genius why did i not think of this why did i not think of this that's exactly how this line was written. Like, 100%. Go go find the author on social media. This is Demetria Sabanti. Go ask her because I want... Like, that had... Like, it's too good. It's too good for any person to have come up with it. <laughs> um, obviously, that's not true. It could have totally been intentional. I, I do not know. I'm just saying I'm jealous. Um, so, damn. Like, there's still more I could talk about with this. Um... But, like, I like I don't want to get started on something and then end up talking about it for 20 minutes without being able to stop and then making the segment go 20 minutes too long. I only got seven minutes left here, so... Um, hmm. Hmm. What, what should I talk about for seven minutes? Only for seven minutes. <sighs> I really like this line right here in the bottom of the first stanza like hollywood men but better than them so obviously there's two reasons why this line is really nice one it rhymes like hollywood men but better than them it you know that's just fun to say it's jaunty i keep saying jaunty and i think that's because her dad is a sailor apparently and i associate the concept of jauntiness with sailors for whatever reason so I'm going to stop using the word jaunty, um, because I feel like it's been played out in this segment, and I don't want to bore you with the semantic satiation of me saying jaunty too many times. Alright, so, let's go back and read this again. Like, Hollywood men, but better than them. So that is a rhythm, and now I'm trying to think of a word besides jaunty to describe it. So I'm going to say bouncy, which I think I've also already said too many times in this entire podcast. So I'm going to go read a a thesaurus and come back next episode. So I'll be ready with all the uh, different adjectives I can use. But anyways, that is a really bouncy line. Um, And I really like how the that bounciness reflects the fact that it's such a childhood thought, you know, like when you're. I mean, obviously, not everyone felt like this, but, like, it's a very common thing for kids to be like, holy shit, my dad is so cool. Like, you, you know what, Bing Crosby, you got nothing on my dad. Like, you know, like, I don't know, who, who's, uh, who's, like, a dad-like actor? I don't know, like, man, why can't, I'm blanking on every, you know what, Keanu Reeves, like, you're just like, Keanu Reeves, like, you you got nothing on my dad. My dad is so cool. Like, you know, I so uh, yeah, that bounciness, the the idea. Um, I really like how it's expressed. Like, Hollywood men, but better than them. It's like, I don't know. Like, you you kind of see your dad as a superhero, but I think calling your dad a superhero and describing them as a superhero is a like a played out trope. And this kind of feeds into that idea of your dad as, like, a superhero, an impossibly strong person who's, like, a demigod to you in your childlike nostalgia. And, um, you know, I, I think this is a fresh way to express that thought, and it does it so concisely. It's one line, and I... I, I don't know, like, I... I I feel like just hearing it, resting in it, that that's good. Like, all you need to do, let's just read it one more time, just because it's such a fun line to read. And you were strong like Hollywood men, but better than them. 
All right, we're gonna leave that line there. I I still actually have another like three or four minutes, so now I gotta think of some. Now I have a harder task. I gotta think of something else to talk about for only three or four minutes. All right. Okay, I think I'm gonna talk about this. So okay, I this is not something you'd be able to hear from how I've been reading the poem, but the first stanza is kind of framed as a big ass quotation. So. The author or the speaker of the poem says, I'm going to Greece to find you, Papu. I'm going to find you in the face of every old Kalamata olive skinned man I see. And when approached, I'll ask, begin quote, Do you remember when Nana would brush my curls? I'll ride it with sweat and youth, blah, 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 blah. We go to the end of the stanza. Did you want to say that you loved me too as you sank into black nothing? End quote. So, the majority of that first stanza is just a mega quote. Or, not a, it's not a quote, but it's a theoretical statement that this speaker has prepared for the old um, Greek men that she's going to talk to in Europe as she looks for her lost father. Um, I kind of... Man, like, I really love this structure. So, it's... I uh, so I just want to say like I really did try hard to find a bunch of things to critique about this poem cuz like I don't like I want to always find a balance like I don't want anyone to think that like all poetry is perfect and I'm only a positive person and everything I say about art is positive because art is amazing and everybody's amazing who does art cuz that's not true I mean some of us write bad poetry and, like, you look, I know, I know that I write a lot of bad poetry, and it's okay for me to write bad poetry because, you know, like, you, you just got to give yourself permission to suck at things, you know? And regardless, you know, I, so, like, a lot of poems really genuinely do have a lot of good things and a lot of problems. Like, it's almost always a mixed bag. I have genuinely tried so hard to find things that I can criticize about this poem, and I'm sure there are things that I can criticize, but it, like, this poem exceeds my own skill as an author in so much that I don't even feel like I should really talk shit about this at all, because, like, doing so would be just so presumptuous on my part to assume that I am, like, in a position where I can critique this, that, anyways, I'm, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting way off track, and I'm wasting my time here, so I'll just shut the fuck up and get back to praising this super good poem that you should all read, um, so, yeah, I really like the structure, the setup, where it's, like, she's going to Greece to find these old men to just ask questions to, I just, I love it because it's, it just draws me in as a reader immediately that this speaker is in such a kind of distress that they're willing to just go, like, it feels like I'm just going to fly out to Greece and just talk to everybody I see on the street and trying to find my dad because I'm just so distraught about this. And it's just, it's such a vulnerable structure to the poem to just be like that. And I, I don't know, like, I, I I'm going to, I'm going to have to keep, I'm just going to cut myself off, like. It's it's really good. And, um, you know, I'll just give you... I'll tell you where you can find it. This is in The Tower, volume 13, published in 2000, spring 2019. So it's, this is fresh, guys. This is fresh poetry. 
and it's on page 39. There's nothing else I can say. You need to go read this for yourself. It's really good. I'm definitely going to be looking for at future issues of The Tower to find more poetry from this author. You know what? I'm going to be looking in Best Poetry 2019 next year, see if this poem's in there, because damn. Anyways, that has been this segment. I'll catch you in the next segment. And with that, our episode is coming to an end. I want to sincerely thank you all for listening to this very first episode. It genuinely means so much that you listen to all 50-some-odd minutes of this. And I'm if you enjoyed it and you want to hear more, then you can find me on Twitter at UnionHour or look at the website SUPoetryHour.com. That's SUPoetryHour.com. You can find The Tower Magazine on Instagram and Twitter at The Tower UMN, or you can take a look at their website to find full issues published as a PDF at thetower.umn.edu. That's thetower.umn.edu. I got nothing else for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. It looks like our hour is up. <laughs>